Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the podcast series based on the book. My name's Nathan Brown, co-editor of A House on Fire and book editor at Science Publishing Company based near Melbourne, Australia. A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism was published late last year and this series published or this series that is being broadcast on the Adventist Peace Radio podcast and the Adventist Voices podcast is basically just having conversations with various of the contributors to that book. There's been some great conversations so far, and we have another one to share with you today. And joining me as co-host is Dr. Lisa Clark Diller, Professor of History at Southern Adventist University. That's good to be here, Nathan. Thank you for joining us once again. I think you're becoming a frequent flyer on this podcast, and we appreciate your your co-conversationist. Lucky me. And our guest on this episode to talk about her chapter in the book and uh, some of her thoughts around it, uh, Dr. Angela Lee, who's an Associate Director of Chaplaincy for the North American Division uh, of Seventh-day Adventists based on the West Coast. Uh, is it California you're based at? Yes. Hi, Nathan. Yes. Thank, thank you for your invitation. This is great to be here. Thank you for joining us and thank you for your contribution to the book. I think when you actually wrote this book, you were uh, working at Loma Linda University. Correct. And you were teaching there? Yeah, I was the professor there, um, uh, also the program director for the chaplaincy program there. Okay, very yeah. cool. I did uh, understand that in the time between you submitting the, the chapter and then us finally editing it and putting the book together that you changed roles. So that must be an adventure for you. Yeah, this is, um, it's still an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And tell me a little bit about, you know, a director of chaplaincy or an associate director. What does that mean as far as your day job and your, well, who do you work with? Sure, sure. So my boss um, now is, is the NAD. So I have the privilege not having to move because um, they needed a West um, West Coast uh, assistant director for the West region. So I have about 210 uh, chaplains in the fields of military, campus, um, healthcare, police, force, law, law enforcement, they call it, um, and firemen, um, prisons, corrections. Um, mm. So we have about, about 210 chaplains and, and I have the privilege of supporting them. And also be in charge of endorsing new ones coming into the to the denomination. Hmm. That must be a fascinating and diverse role in supporting people in all those different fields. Yeah, and uh, I travel quite a bit, and I'm still enjoying it. So, yeah, That's and good. I meet a lot of cool people, and then also collaborating with the unions and conferences um, over here in the West region. Hmm. Can I ask Angela just an ignorant question? Is this does this mean that these are people who are who are hired to be chaplains um, by a prison or a hospital or police force, and that's who's their those who their bosses, but they Correct. are 
endorsed by they are they are themselves Seventh-day Adventists and they're either their ordination or commission or credentialing comes from the Seventh-day Adventist church and you're you come along they are not required to have a particular relationship with you necessarily but the North American division wants to support Adventists who are chaplains in these roles and so you come alongside them to do that or is this something that's required from their job that they must have somebody that they officially report to in their church great great question Lisa so um, the supporting part is is the side job actually so um, most of the actually uh, most of the healthcare uh, institutions the military um, not campus, but uh, corrections. They the employers, uh, their employers require um, endorsement from the denomination that they belong to. So mm-hmm. they have to have that. Um, um, they have to contact me, you know, to to maintain that and, and get that in order for them to continue to to continue to have their employment. And they have to submit a report annually to mm-hmm. to ACM, and I oversee the ones from the West region. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if they don't have that endorsement. Um, most of them would not be able to work. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's great. Is it? Can I ask? It related to your to your chapter. Uh, are, is there kind of an even spread gender wise of chaplains that you oversee? No. No. Um, we have probably eighty percent, seventy to seventy five to eighty percent male and twenty um, percent a little less female. All right. We'll get more into that, I assume, later. I just, you know, while we're talking about what you do, your day job, uh, when you're not writing prophetic style chapters in amazing books, uh, that I just thought I'd connect those two things. Sure. Thank you. Yes. So, so a question about your origin story. How did you get into chaplaincy? Did you get that into that from an academic perspective or were you a chaplain in, in some role? So chaplaincy is actually my second um, career. I started out as um, a business person. So I was an accountant. Um, I worked for the accounting department for La Sierra and Loma Linda. Mm-hmm. And um, when my kids were, well, well, when I was conceived with my first uh, firstborn, um, I felt like I need to stay home for a little bit. And then when I stayed home for four years, um, I thought about changing a career because counseling, um, spiritual care um, were my passion, but I didn't get to go to school for that because my parents were very, um, during my undergrad, they were very adamant about me fin- finishing um, um, my undergrad with a business background. So mm-hmm. so um, once I, I got the freedom to choose, again, um, I... I was looking into the marriage and family counseling um, degree, and but somehow when I was looking um, through those, God kind of spoke to me in an inaudible voice, saying that what about chaplaincy? And then I found out that a lot of chaplains actually was uh, was asked that this question, what about chaplaincy? So I got asked the same question, what about chaplain being a chaplain? And mm. I thought, what is a chaplain? And so so then I I searched and then Loma Linda offered a degree. And um, then I started, and it was beautiful. I think that it was a perfect match for my passion and and um, and God's will. And then since then, I haven't been really working for a whole, for a day at all. You know, every day is just fun and and enjoyment, fulfillment. So it's been a great ride so far. Mm. 
Well, let me ask the dumb question, and we'll get to your chapter shortly. Sure. Um, but what is a chaplain compared to many of us probably more familiar with a pastor? Correct, um, correct. What's the difference? So a chaplain is is the other counterpart of a pastor. Um, the pastor normally, you know, they 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 work within the church, but um, a chaplain is like a pastor, but we work outside of the church. So wherever um, um, we we place, we work with people um, from all walks of life with or without a religion, and we are trained to walk with them, journey with them, and bring hope and healing, um, fulfillment and strength to them, however they see God or however they, they find strength within themselves. So it's, it's more like a one-on-one um, meeting most of the time, and um, we also perform weddings and, and funerals and different rituals, whatever they need, but we are outside of the, um, the church setting. Hmm. Yeah. One of my friends said that it's like all of the blessings of being a pastor without being like a manager of an organization and institution, you know, like so much of pastoring is like running a church, which is like being a middle manager and like not, and what you wanted to get in for it for was to like bless people and to like come alongside them in their pain and their joy. And, and then you don't really get to do that. Whereas chaplains, that's what they get to do without all of the stuff that goes along with like, taking on money and running the budget and getting people to show up and volunteer and who's in charge of what and everything. Anyway. You, you are correct. Your friend is correct, Lisa. And, and I don't want to promote it too much. Um, it is true. And so 99% of our time is ministry. Yeah. Um, so it, it's great. So yeah, so I think that should be your new tagline, ministry without the board meetings. It, I think you'd, you'd get people on board. <laughs> yeah, but, but so when I, when I went into um, conferences and unions, pastors would come approach me, how can I get, you know, to, into chaplaincy? I would say, you know, you have to, to get um, clinical pastoral education, about 1,600 clinical hours, then you can do it. And, and so I said, please do not ask me again, because I think the unions and the, the conferences, they might be upset at me coming in. They think that <laughs> I'm feeling their cheap. <laughs> they ask me, but, you know, normally I don't promote it. <laughs> That's good. So you wrote a chapter in A House on Fire. It's great to, great to hear about chaplaincy, and we appreciate that little insight <laughs> into, your, into your day job. Um, but you talked about creation as a basis for mm. talking about race and about some of the myths that are particularly drawn out of the Genesis story and mm-hmm. the impact that, that has mm-hmm. had theologically on the issue of race. And I really appreciated your chapter. One of the insights that I had brought to this project myself was simply that I see race as a theological problem, mm. and and I think you get right to the heart of that here. Mm. Um, so give us the brief the brief argument that you're you're making. Okay. In- or as a place to, for us to start? Okay. Um, it, it's actually related to, to my training and chaplaincy because a lot of times when we talk with patients or, or people who are um, seeking support, we like to go, if they allowed us, we'll go deeper into where things are coming from. So, so for me, when I look at issues, problems, or blessings, whatever that is, um, spiritually, I always go back to as far back as, as I could. So the same thing with, with racism. I want to see where, as far as I could see, you know, how far can we go back to trace that? 
And、mm-hmm. as I was、mm, thinking about that, Genesis is always a good place to start.、Um, <laughs> yeah, you know,、um, because when I when I do preaching, I always go back to our our first parents,、um, what happened there, and so it could trace back all the problems since then. And so racism, I I could just look at you know the problematic inter- interpretation of of how. Um, Ham was cursed, and and you know if if you have read the chapter or or the scriptures, Ham didn't directly get got cursed by by his by Noah. It's actually Canaan, you know, Ham's son got cursed. So、mm. all so what we've been hearing、um, from church or from our pastors, it already kind of get a muddy translation or story、um, behind the story. So so therefore,、mm. I want to highlight that and and. And show that you know there is a problem when we are passing down history or or narrative stories、mm-hmm. that are a little bit off. And of course,、mm-hmm. um, bef- when I did that, I also then you know was reading. Oh, you know, God did not say that people could could、um, have dominion over anybody. So everybody actually was created created equally. And so where so slavery is totally. Um, not of a plan from God.、Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, God doesn't meet us where we are. But, but if we want to be very um, um, correct about it, I guess we have to look at how people were created, how Adam and Eve were created. They were created to only、um, be dominion over, have dominion over animals, and、um, that's it. And I don't know how much more simpler can. You can get. <laughs> yes,、mm. you make the point that very clearly that there is no dominion over each other that is placed there, and you introduce an important word, which is one that I think is probably one that isn't familiar, but it's a really valuable word in our thinking of the identifying the problem of kiriaki.、Mm-hmm. Many of us are familiar with patriarchy and a few other akis like that. Can you give us the working definition of kiriaki and how that might help us in understanding the problem that you're identifying?、Um, yes, that's that's been a while, but let me let me let me think <laughs> a little bit.、Um, I think I think when I when I think about that word,、um, th- so let me let me let me say this first. I think deconstruction of a system、um, is important, and so. Um, hierarchy is 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 about that、um, superiority that we have um, that、mm-hmm. um, is beyond is beyond、um, racism is beyond sexism is is like a mindset that we、um, that we really is really hard for us to even be aware of,、um, and I would say it is is more like.、Um, Um, having this superiority feeling,、um, mm. yeah, yeah. I guess in my understanding of it, it's almost this this thing that we've read into, whether it's into our creation stories from a theological sense, or that we almost assume in the world is that there is this hierarchy inherent in the way things are and the way things ought to be.、Um, of course, kiriaki comes from the word lord, or you know the the Greek lord. So it's lordship that we ascribe lordship to some, but not to others,、mm-hmm. and and almost that when we have 
somebody that is put in that position of authority, then by definition, there have to be people who are dominated by it. Yeah. And so it's it's, yeah, so it's, it's kind always, of this catch-all ta- term. Yeah, so it's um, always like there is a dominant group and a servant group, hmm. right? So hmm. so that's already very problematic if, that, if, if there's that mindset people have. Yeah. Angela, I wonder, even kind of backing up a, a fra- the framework for your entire chapter, which I think is interesting, could you talk a little bit about the importance of myths? Um, like what we mean by that, that word is kind of in your title, like what, why that's important to us as humans to kind of talk about myths. myths. Um, yeah. Um, you know, like why, why, why are, is myth making or, or this, the myth, the creation myth, um, what do we mean by that? And why is that so important to us as humans? Like what those myths are? Okay. So a lot of times, a lot of times I think when we don't go back to the source, we don't, if we don't read the text ourselves and we don't do a deeper diving, we tend to just um, be okay with how narratives been passed along, like, like a uh, folk story, you know, what, like, like a family story, you know, you don't, mm. you don't need to, you don't feel that they need to uh, verify. You're just like, oh, you know, this is, yes, correct. And, and then you keep passing along. And to me, that, that is a, a, um, a story that is not true, then it becomes a myth. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it, there is some truth to it. People can recognize it um, enough, but then the details were, were wrong. Um, and so, so for example, um, a lot of people, if we ask them, um, they might still think that, okay, yeah, when Eve um, took the, the, the fruit, um, from from the, the the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Um, Adam was not there. Eve was wandering around by herself, and and so she she partook the food, partook the food, and then it ruined the whole entire humanity. So when but when but then when they were challenged to go back and read it, oh, right. I didn't know right. Adam was next to right. her. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So what was that? That was to me just a myth about right. that story. Yeah. Mm. Right. As the historian amongst us, Dr. Diller, how would you distinguish between history and myth? Well, I mean, I didn't know that was what we were doing in this scenario. Um, <laughs> because I think, uh, but it, I think what, what, uh, you know, Dr. Lee was doing was talking about these origin stories that mm. we have. And I'll, I'll do what you just asked me to do in a minute, uh, Nathan, <laughs> but the origin stories that are so important that you were talking about the curiosity that, that the stories that we tell that try to make sense of our world, right? Like mm. that's what a myth is and uh, stories mostly about the past, you know, mm. which we'll get, you know, to how history might be different than that. But like the stories we tell about the past to make sense of why things are the way that they are, and so much actually in our sacred text in the Bible, as well as in what's not in the Bible, you know, that, but we've extrapolated from or just made up or whatever is about trying to categorize people and say, well, why? I mean, you read like the Pentateuch or whatever it is and, or even Joshua, like they're often trying to say these people here, like I've just, I'm finishing the old Testament right now, kind of in my own worship reading and like all the, the like prophetic prophecies about the philistines or you know the different vers- groups of canaanites or whatever and they're telling st- they're kind of it's like they're explaining 
this is what they did to get to where they are now and why we should treat them this way, you know? And so, so it's all those categorizing. And, and like you're saying, it's hierarchical. Like, here's the roles everyone's supposed to play. Here's the ancient stories for why they're supposed to play those things, play those roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's partly for, for historians, um, like when we study history, we include the kind of stories, origin stories people told about themselves we don't necessarily act, spend a lot of time going, well, did it actually happen the way that they said it did? We spend more time going, what is the meaning behind the fact that they thought that mm. it did this? Like, mm-hmm. so if a historian was studying the ancient Hebrews, they would look at the myths they told themselves, the creation story they had, and they wouldn't spend a lot of time, historians wouldn't spend a lot of time going, did the creation story happen this way or not? They would say, what did it mean to these Hebrews that they thought this way about the creation story? And if they're studying 20th century or 21st century, if they're not, if they're doing more contemporary sociology rather than what we would call history. But anyway, mm-hmm. if they're studying 20th century Christians and they go, what does it mean that they thought this way? Like what Angela, uh, Dr. Lee is doing in her chapter, what does it mean that they thought this about men and women about race like what did they do with that story you know and i think that's what what you're doing dr lee i feel like is looking and saying what is the fact that we've told we've retold our the stories in our sacred text with particular spins on them and then what meaning did that make for us in the pews and in our families and in our communities and in our churches right that's what it seems like you're doing you're going like we we told this story as if this is now, and again, some of the times the story was just wrong. Like, I will never forget the um, group Bible study Tommy and I were part of in graduate school in University Christian Fellowship with multiple people from different Christian denominations. And all of us reading Genesis together and trying to, te- to figure out, like, what stories were we all told as kids that when we're reading it together, we're like, you were told, I was told this. And and as we're reading the text, mm, it's mm. not, it's not just the, it's not just the Eve story. There's a bunch of other ones that, you know, some, we weren't all told the same wrong stories, but we often, sometimes we were, and like, it was shocking to actually read the text and go, Oh, Eve did not wander from the side of Adam. Like, where did we all get that from? Well, we know, you know, John Milton, but you know, not naming names, but um, it maybe maybe he got it from someone else. I don't know, but anyway, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, Doctor Lee. Like you know, like that that seems like what you're doing in this chapter is saying what how did the way that we tell these stories mm. shape meaning in our current life? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. regardless of if they were wrong yeah. it, to the text you, or not. Yeah, you you you. What you said was just great. Um, please call me Angela. You know, I I really do not like titles um <laughs> what i was going to say is you know with those myths and 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 however we 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 tell retell the story it creates a lens for the people that we we're, we're telling so that lens is very important for for them to look at life to look at um all aspects of life so if you give people the wrong lens um and they didn't ha- happen to examine their lenses then then it becomes very problematic because with a different, with a different view of looking at the text, and then and then interpret themselves, internalize, and then um, when they, especially when they have some type of authority, or they become, um, you know, the uh, the father or or, or mother, um, a leader at home, even what they pass down to the next generation affects, you know, 
not only their children, but their children's children, and then the, and then the children's, you know, whoever they they interact with later on. Um, mm-hmm. it, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but but to me that is a lens that they're creating because of those um, myths, and then that's what that's what is very problematic. It's because they're creating lenses for people to look at the world, how they look at the world. And of course, part of the challenge with that is that. Once we have those lenses in front of our eyes long enough, that becomes the natural and assumed way of, that we see things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then if I, they hold on tight to it because we are also born with certain type of trauma or wounds. And then so we find certain lenses to also fit um, to, to protect our, our wounded self. And so when that happens, that lens, those lenses become really, really attached to, to our eyes and it's really hard to peel them out because of mm. that. Yeah. For the purposes of this book, you do something particularly interesting. You know, we're talking about racism and you wrote a chapter that to some degree is at least also as much about, and this gets back to the Kiriaki idea that we we're talking about, which is also talking about the you know, uh, ordering of gender as well. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of a, one of my favourite quotes in Beth Ellison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, mm-hmm. where she says, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing Christians that oppression is godly, that God ordained some people simply because of their sex or skin colour or both as belonging under the power of other people. Mm. And I think that's really the thing that you're addressing in this chapter, that this ordering that is the lens that we're, you know, based on these stories that we tell, is the lens that we see the world through and this becomes a natural way and so we need to get back to reread these stories to go deeper into them and to really look at them closely mm-hmm. so that we can challenge that order yes and um, then the, the the most scary part is they think that this is god's will for them to do mm, that mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so that becomes a challenge for us because as a church we as you point out very we have our gender issues mm. that we haven't been able to solve and they are important in and of themselves. But I guess the question that your chapter asked is that does this also become, a, uh, I guess, a, a question about, you know, if we have this kind of ordering of is our problem actually the bigger behind the thing <laughs> issue that we have this hierarchical view of what creation and humanity is and then that is expressed in racial issues, gender issues, and the divides that we create there. Is that what you're trying to say there? Yes, part of it. And I think also when when we have those type of um, mindsets, it certain people will feel very comfortable um, making the orders. And and um, I don't want to say that they're feeling they're, they're superior, but but yet they they do have that um, mindset, thinking that you know I am. I am. I have more power than you. Therefore, I can assign all these roles, and I have to say, you know, who who can be on this t- in, around this table or not. And so, mm. so I see that a lot of times, maybe it's just not our our denomination. I think beyond our denomination, but but we're now talking about our own, right? Our own denomination. Mm. That that sometimes we think that those um, feelings of superiority was is is a good thing. You know, for example, a lot of people would think that, oh, we have the truth, we have the spirit of prophecy, and we are better than other Christians. And so the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, we we have 
I, I have a certain type of skin. I, I am male that, that the Bible ordained. So the rest is you guys are supportive. You guys are with supportive roles. And so, you know, even though if God calls you, you, you still have to stay in your place because that's how mm. it's supposed to be. But, but then my challenge is who said that? Was it, was it mm. God or was it just mm. an artificial, um, human making, mm. you know, um, of this kind of structure? Mm. So I was trying to just, um, maybe, um, challenge, you know, um, our, our nomination, our leaders to look deeply, where did that come from? Um, and do, do mm. we have that syndrome? Like, you know, other people, you know, do we feel more special than others? And when that happens, that's a trap. It's definitely a trap. Does that mean that those folks who are opposing women's ordination, to be very specific, who warn us that it is the beginning of a slippery slope and we might have to challenge some of our other um, superiorities and hierarchies, that they're actually right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, they, they kind of want to not open any cans of worms, right? And so if, mm. if one is closed, you know, the other ones may not be opened. <laughs> and Angela, I mean, I have a couple of questions. One is, like, would you say then that kind of any kind of categorizing or telling ancient stories rooted in our text to, like, explain how and why we are categorized in groups the way we are? lends itself to racking and stacking um you know like and to like and so therefore like i mean how do we have like any kind of identity within you know like of any kind of or you know and i think that's part of where people are coming from that get worried about that and so i'm interested to hear you kind of think about that because to lead into some other things that maybe before we wind up our time we get to talk about you a couple of things i really appreciate about your chapter one is how autobiographical you include. I think, I think, you know, it is these chapters when they work best do have a little bit of autobiography in them, but I don't know if that would come into play in your addressing a question of like how to have identity that, you know, and, and, and how, how does that, is that different than like an identity that's rooted in some sort of big ancient myth and creation story? Um, or, and by myth, I'm not meaning wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that creation is a myth. I'm just saying in the sense of a foundational story of how things got to be the way that they are. Um, and then also you suggest some ways we can do better a little bit towards the end, like how we can either make new stories or reread our creation stories or things like that. And so maybe addressing a little bit of, you know, autobiography and, and, and a hope for the future, but maybe doing it in that kind of like, is there any room? for categories at all or you know what might that look yes, like? Yes, Lisa, great question. And and this has been um one of the things I, I think about all the time, categories. Because you have to have some some type of categories, otherwise um things can go like unorganized, right? So so by mm -hmm. I in, in the ideal world, in Angela's ideal world, categories should exist, but it should apply to every single um group. Um, so when I started my PhD program in the beginning, um, my Asian theology, theolo theolo theology, um, uh, course professor, it challenged me to, 
to write something from my own context. That was when I just first started my 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 program, and I told him、mm-hmm. absolutely not. I want to write on the topics that the white people are writing. You know, I don't want to be subject to just writing from my own context. You know, because then I I'm afraid that I may be put into a category. And then when I、mm. then when I finish the course, I'm like, no, I think there's a reason that I need to、um, give my voice、um, for this particular、mm. group, the Asian group. However. I would be a lot more comfortable if、um, the the、um, the rest of the the、um, the writings or or, or um, um, yeah papers would, would would also have the category. Like for example, I don't know if this would cause problem, but I'm thinking if we can call Black theology, we can have Asian American theology. We should have、um, North American white theology. Then I will be okay. You know,、um, mm. instead of just putting certain groups with with that category and not all, that means that there is still subgroup、mm. and and there's still a a majority、mm. group there, which、mm. I still have a problem with. Yeah,、mm-hmm. does it answer your、mm-hmm. question? Right. So you're just what you're doing is acknowledging the fact that、um, all of us are particular. So humans are not universal. Humans are particular. We live in communities, and we do have like identity within those communities. There is no quote universal experience that anyone gets to speak from. We all are speaking from our particular experience, and that we have tended to assume in this context that we're speaking from. You know, let's say uh, uh, I'm from white North American division. Nathan's white Australian. You know.、Um, We're not. He and I are not the same.、Um, Australians are a bit different from North Americans,、um, <laughs> but still,、um, and and still within that, you know, like. To, but for me to acknowledge, like, my writing comes from middle class, educated white lady in twentieth and twenty first century North America, and there's other people I have in common with that.、Um, you know, the other historians, maybe other Adventists, other people that live in East Tennessee, whatever category I'm. Kind of speaking out or speaking to, and to like n- just all kind of acknowledge、Correct. that we are particular. None of us are universal. We are all particular, and even though I am a unique individual, there are, in, depending on the Venn diagram of my identity at the moment, like you speak as a chaplain, you know, as an academic, as a North American, as a Chinese American, you know, you have mo- woman, you know, you have like multiple identities that you speak from. And if we should, we should all just be acknowledging Correct. those,、right. rather than it just being like there's this standard, and then there's those other people over there that are the minority groups. Yeah, or so the, so just every category so that they can be part of this. But so then everybody should have the same equal again, same equal um, um, assignment. Hmm. Yeah. So categorization is not necessarily the problem. It's when we assign different values based on that categorization、mm. or different. Different, you know, the hierarchy again of you know ordering that in, you know, from from greatest、mm-hmm. to least by virtue of some assumed order of it. I think that's a and no one gets to speak for everyone else either. Like, and that's part of the problem. I mean, we again, white North Americans, whether we're talking about Adventists or Christian or academic or you know whatever we're talking about. We know that we have lots of diversity. We don't speak as one, but then we want somebody to speak for all Black theologians, or you know, all Asian American physicians, or you know, whatever. And you know that 
a few, the more diversity that you have, the more diversity within that diversity, you know, and like, so nobody has to speak for everybody and be like the one voice, you know, or that there is one voice. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as Lisa mentioned, you, you draw on some of your own, your own story of growing up as a Chinese American uh, Adventist. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that bring to your understanding of the bigger questions of race and racism as addressed in this book? Yeah, so so growing up, I when I was growing up in Hong Kong, I was majority. So I never felt that, you know, um there is a a a um a this uh, uh, a struggle that I have I have to face, you know, to to mm. to gain a voice because I I walk out and I I speak Cantonese and and everybody the same way and we don't I don't have any challenges. But when I so I was not aware of racism as a matter of fact um a lot of um the asian communities they they also it's so it's not just um the American, i mean the, the the one particular group um for a lot of asians they they don't they do not allow their children to marry outside of their own ethnic background too because they think that they are superior mm-hmm. so this superiority mm-hmm. is actually universal um mm-hmm. and so when i came over here i had to adjust to to um, being asked questions like, oh, um, where are you really from? Um, you know how to use fork and knife. You know, where did you learn that from? Um, or I one time I was walking down the road, somebody said, um, why don't you just go home? That's like 20 some years ago. Um, so so mm-hmm. I began to realize, hey, you know, as, as I am being um, um, treated not very friendly in a sense, um, then I begin to to understand when when um, my my friends in the black community when they talk about you know being treated un, you know um, unjustly, I can understand I can identify what they're thinking and and so in I don't think I could truly um, embrace um, advocating or or in a sense um, standing up for injustice until um, I become friends with with um, other groups you know, with, with um, the black community, with my Hispanic friends, then I can truly advocate. I think it didn't, honestly, it didn't come from me, honestly, if you ask me. It is God nudging me, you know, to open my eyes and I, mm. I have to be humble and look and, and heal from my own um, wounds before I can really um, even write this chapter. Yeah, share, share my opinion. And, and I, I cannot take the credit. Um, it is it is actually God opening my eyes and and nudging me to to look at what thing what things that I was not able to see before. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 interesting, and how our experience shapes our. But even how even with the experiences that we've had, that we still you know that there is there is a God way of seeing that actually nudges us towards. Uh, empathy in that kind mm-hmm. of way, and um, and always challenges us to to at least consider the world from somebody else's perspective. Mm-hmm. I think is, you know, that I think that should be one of the core gifts of our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get back to as is the topic of, you know, the central affirmation that every person is created in the image of God, mm-hmm. which I think is the core theological response to racism. 
mm-hmm. uh, you, we simply get to that point of saying, well, if everybody is every person that we ever meet in any way, shape, or form, uh, created in the image of God, then we then surely there's something we must be able to see from their experience mm-hmm. of the world, and and also to stay true to to God's command to our um, first parents, you know, Adam and Eve, to to have dominion over the animals, you know, and the, and the fish. So we just stay in, in that lane. We don't we don't go you know go over to other people's lane. We just stay there and say yes, you know, we we have to to treat our and be nice to our animals and and maybe we can you know um have dominion over them even but but that's it cannot be beyond that and and just stay there no buts no mm. ifs and no other um circumstances will, will, will or, or excuses or, or stories would would can justify um what, what mm. we've been doing yeah so since the book has come out, I have seen a couple of panel discussions that you've been a part of in talking about this book. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't had the chance to meet in person, but I have seen you talk about it on a couple of occasions. What have you learned from that interaction and being a part of, you know, of, you know often race and racism, particularly as it's talked about in the North American context, is assumed to be a black and white issue. And I use that term advisedly. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, as somebody who doesn't fit in that black and white binary of the racial discussion, what have you learnt from interacting with some of these conversations around this book and even, I guess, reading some of the other chapters of the book as you've had that opportunity as well? Yeah, yeah, I, Nathan, exactly what I was thinking when, when, um, uh, Maury, um, Dr. Jackson asked me to, to write a chapter I was a little shocked. I thought, well, I am not white nor black, you know, so why <laughs> why would he want to ask me? But I'm so glad that he actually added me to it. Um, mm. First, I learned that um, I have learned so much from everyone. Um, I haven't finished reading the whole book yet, but I'm close to it. I've been, towards the end, it's, it's, it's harder. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh as a, as an Asian, I I I want to I want to voice too. I I don't want to say that. Well, it's all the the the, the white folks' problem, you know, with racism. I think mm. all ethnic group has that. So I every time I don't know if I had a chance to 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 answer that, but I always want to say that you know this is not just a a a white problem. Is is a yeah I mean a Asian problem. You know, we are also very racist. Um, we at our church we just talked about racism not too long ago, because mm. we also um, either feel the same way that that you know the darker skin of person, um, the uh, lower class or whatever you know they are, which is totally a myth. Um, <laughs> we have to kind of when, when so when I write wrote this chapter, I asked uh, all, a lot of our Asian. Uh, members to read it and so I think sometimes if if I didn't write a chapter maybe the Asian community might not be even be interested because it all this is not our issue this is not nobody from our communities is saying something so so I I'm glad that I could you know Mm. um, be a contributor and learn from others and it enriched um, and affirmed my belief and I feel that that's how it should be with all ethnic backgrounds talking about the issue 
and from their own context and, and be humble enough to learn from others and yet to contribute what we can see from, from our angle. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us and certainly we appreciate your contribution and be, that you are part of the book. Um, when when Maury started giving me the list of some of the good people he wanted to contribute, you were certainly uh, well on the list and we're glad that you um, accepted our, our invitation and challenge to make a contribution. Thank you, yeah. Thank you also for taking the time to talk with us today and to share just a little bit more um, on it. Yeah, it was lovely to meet you this way, Angela. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So my hope is, you know, if we could eventually, if if it's from this book or from other um, places that we can live closer to to a harmonious community, I think that's our goal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spoken like a true chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> that's Thank cool. You, Nathan. Thank you, Lisa. This is great being here. Dr. Angela Lee, thank you for sharing with us today. Lisa Clark-Diller, thank you for co-hosting on this episode. I've been Nathan Brown. This is A House on Fire, the podcast series. Thank you again to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices. We'll catch you on the next episode. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.